0: Reading of Halloween Horrors, spine, tling, spine tingling stories for the scariest night of the year. Featuring stories by Dean Koontz, Ray Bradbury, and Peter Straub and more, compiled by Richard Chismar and Robert Morris, read to you by Figmentation of Your Imagination. The Black Pumpkin by Dean Koontz. The pumpkins were creepy, but the man who carved them was far stranger than his creations. He appeared to have baked for ages in the California sun until all the juices had been cooked out of his flesh. He was stringy, bony, and leather-skinned. His head resembled a squash, not pleasingly round like a pumpkin, yet not shaped like an ordinary head either. Slightly narrower at the top and wider at the chin than was natural. His amber eyes glowed with a sullen, smoky, weak, but dangerous light. Tommy Sootsman was uneasy the moment that he saw the old pumpkin carver. He told himself that he was foolish, overreacting again. He had a tendency to be alarmed by the mildest signs of anger in others, to panic at the first vague perception of a threat. Some families taught their 12-year-old boys honesty, integrity, decency, and faith in God. By their actions, however, Tommy's parents and his brother Frank had taught him to be cautious, suspicious, and even paranoid. In the best of times, his mother and father treated him as an outsider, and the worst of times, they enjoyed punishing him as a means of releasing their anger and frustration at the rest of the world. To Frank, Tommy was simply and always a target. Consequently, deep and abiding uneasiness was Tommy Suitsman's natural natural condition. Every December, this vacant lot was full of Christmas trees, and during the summer, itinerant merchants merchants used the space to exhibit day-glow stuffed animals or paintings on velvet. As Halloween approached, the half-acre property, tucked between a supermarket and a bank on the outskirts of Santa Ana, was an orange montage of pumpkins, all sizes and shapes, lined in rows and stacked in neat low pyramids and tumbled in piles, maybe 2,000 of them, 3,000, the raw material of pies and jack-o'-lanterns. The carver was in a back corner of the lot, sitting on a tube-metal chair. The vinyl upholstered pads on the back and seat of the chair were darkly mottled, webbed with cracks, not unlike the carver's face. He sat with a pumpkin on his lap, whittling with a sharp knife and other tools that lay on the dusty ground beside him. Tommy Sutzman did not remember crossing the field of pumpkins. He recalled getting out of the car as soon as his father had parked at the curb, and the next thing he knew, he was in the back of the lot just a few feet from the strange sculptor. A score of finished jack-o'-lanterns were propped atop mounds of other pumpkins. This artist did not merely hack crude eye holes and mouths. He carefully cut the skin and the rind of the squash in layers, producing features with great definition and surprising subtlety. He also used paint to give each creation its own demonic personality. Four cans, each containing a brush, stood on the ground beside his chair—red, white, green, and black— The jack-o'-lanterns grinned and frowned and scowled and leered. They seemed to be staring at Tommy, every one of them. Their mouths were agape, little pointy teeth bared. None had the blunt, goofy dental work of ordinary jack-o'-lanterns. Some were equipped with long fangs, staring, staring, and Tommy had the peculiar feeling that they could see him. When he looked up from the pumpkins, he discovered that the old man was also watching him intently. Those amber eyes, full of smoky light, seemed to brighten as they held Tommy's own gaze. "'Would you like one of my pumpkins?' the carver asked. In his cold, dry voice, each word was as crisp as October leaves windblown along a stone walk. Tommy could not speak. He tried to say, "'No, sir, thank you, no,' but the words stuck in his throat as if he were trying to swallow the cloying pulp of a pumpkin." "'Pick a favorite,' the carver said, gesturing with one withered hand toward his gallery of grotesques, but never taking his eyes off Tommy. "'No, uh, no, thank you.' Tommy was dismayed to hear that his voice had a tremor and a slightly shrill edge. "'What's wrong with me?' he wondered. "'Why am I hyping myself into a fit like this? "'He's just an old guy who carves pumpkins.' "'Is it the price you're worried about?' the carver asked. "'No, because you pay the man out for the pumpkin.' Out front for the pumpkin, same price as any other on the lot, and you just give me whatever you feel my work is worth. When he smiled, every aspect of his squash-shaped head changed, not for the better. The day was mild. Sunshine found its way through holes in the overcast, overcast, brightly illuminating some orange mounds of pumpkins while leaving others in deep cloud shadows. In spite of the warm weather, a chill gripped Tommy and would not release him. "'Leaning forward with the half-sculpted pumpkin in his lap, "'the carver said, "'You just give me whatever you, whatever amount you wish, "'although I'm duty-bound to say that you get what you give.' "'Another smile, worse than the first one. "'Tommy said, "'Uh... "'You get what you give,' the carver repeated. "'No shit,' Brother Frank said, "'stepping up to the row of leering jack-o'-lanterns. "'Evidently he had overheard everything.' He was two years older than Tommy, muscular where Tommy was slight, with a self-confidence that Tommy had never known. Frank hefted the most macabre of all the old guy's creations. So, how much is this one? The carver was reluctant to shift his gaze from Tommy to Frank, and Tommy was unable to break the contact first. In the man's eyes, Tommy saw something he could not define or understand, something that filled his mind's eye with images of disfigured children, deformed creatures that he could not name, and dead things. "'How much is this one?' gramps, Frank repeated. At last, the carver looked at Frank and smiled. He lifted the half-carved pumpkin off his lap, put it on the ground, but did not get up. "'As I said, you pay me what you wish, and you get what you give.' Frank had chosen the most disturbing jack-o'-lantern in the eerie collection. It was big, not pleasingly round, but lumpy and misshapen, narrower at the top than at the bottom, with ugly crusted nodules like lineous fungus on a diseased oak tree. The old man had compounded the unsettling effect of the pumpkin's natural deformities by giving it an immense mouth with three upper and three lower fangs its nose was an irregular hole that made tommy think of campfire tales about lepers the slanted eyes were as large as lemons but were not cut all the way through the rind except for a pupil an evil elliptical slit in the center of each the stem in the head was dark and knotted as tommy imagined a cancerous growth might be The maker of jack-o'-lanterns had painted this one black, letting the natural orange color blaze through in only a few places to create character lines around the eyes and mouth, as well as to add emphasis to the tumorous growths. Frank was bound to like that pumpkin. His favorite movies were the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all the Friday the 13th sagas of the mad murderous Jason. When Tommy and Frank watched a movie of that kind on the VCR, Tommy always pulled for the victims while Frank cheered the killer. Watching Poltergeist, Frank was disappointed that the whole family survived. He kept hoping that the little boy would be eaten by some creepazoid in the closet and that his stripped bones would be spit out like watermelon seeds. Hell, Frank had said, they could have at least ripped the guts out of the stupid dog. Now, Frank held the black pumpkin, grinning as he studied its malevolent features. He squinted into the thing's slitted pupils as if the jack-o'-lantern's eyes were real, as if there were thoughts to be read in those depths. And for a moment, he seemed to be mesmerized by the pumpkin's gaze. Put it down, Tommy thought urgently. For God's sake, Frank, put it down and let's get out of here. The carver watched Frank intently. The old man was still, like a predator, preparing to pounce. Clouds moved, blocking the sun. Tommy shivered. Finally, breaking the staring contest, contest with the jack-o'-lantern, Frank said to the carver, "'I give you whatever I like. You get what you give. But no matter what I give, I get the jack-o'-lantern.' "'Yes, but you get what you give,' the old man said cryptically. Frank put the black pumpkin aside and pulled some change from his pocket. Grinning, he approached the old man, holding a nickel. The carver reached for the coin. "'No!' Tommy protested too explosively. Both Frank and the carver regarded him with surprise.' "'Tommy said, "'No, Frank, it's a bad thing. Don't buy it. Don't bring it home, Frank.' "'For a moment, Frank stared at him in astonishment, then laughed. "'You've always been a wimp, but are you telling me now you're scared of a pumpkin?' "'It's a bad thing,' Tommy insisted. "'Scared of the dark, scared of high places, scared of what's in your bedroom closet at night, "'scared of half the other kids you meet, and now scared of a stupid damn pumpkin,' Frank said.' He laughed again, and his laugh was rich with scorn and disgust as well as with amusement. The carver took his cue from Frank, but the old man's dry laugh contained no amusement at all tommy was pierced by an icy needle of fear that he could not explain and he wondered if he might be a wimp after all afraid of his shadow maybe even unbalanced the counselor at school said he was too sensitive his mother said he was too imaginative and his father said he was impractical a dreamer self-involved Maybe he was all those things, and perhaps he would wind up in a sanitarium some day in a booby hatch with rubber walls talking to imaginary people, eating flies. But damn it, he knew the black pumpkin was a bad thing. Here, Gramps, Frank said, here's a nickel. Will you really sell it for that? I'll take a nickel for my carving, but you still have to pay the usual price of the pumpkin to the fellow who operates the lot. Deal, Frank said. The The carver plucked the nickel out of Frank's hand. Tommy shuddered. Frank turned from the old man and picked up the pumpkin again. Just then the sun broke through the clouds. A shaft of light fell on their corner of the loft. Only Tommy saw what happened in that radiant moment. The sun brightened the orange of the pumpkins, imparted a gold sheen to the dusty ground, gleamed on the metal frame of the chair, but did not touch the carver himself. The light parted around him as if it were a curtain, leaving him in the shade. "'It was an incredible sight, as though the sunshine shunned the carver, "'as though he were composed of an unearthly substance that repelled light.' "'Tommy gasped. "'The old man fixed Tommy with a wild look, as though he were not a man at all, "'but a storm spirit passing as a man, "'as though he would at any second erupt into tornadoes of wind, "'furies of rain, crashes of thunder, lightning. "'His amber eyes were aglow with promises of pain and terror.' Abruptly, the clouds covered the sun again. The old man winked. We're dead, Tommy thought miserably. Having lifted the pumpkin again, Frank looked craftily at the old man as if expecting to be told that the nickel sale was a joke. I can really just take it away? I keep telling you, the carver said. How long did you work on this? Frank asked. About an hour? And you're willing to settle for a nickel an hour? I work for the love of it, for the sheer love of it, the carver winked at Tommy again. What are you, senile? Frank asked in his usual charming manner. Maybe, maybe. Frank stared at the old man, perhaps sensing some of what Tommy felt, but he finally shrugged and turned away, carrying the jack-o'-lantern toward the front of the lot where their father was buying a score of uncarved pumpkins for the big party the following night. Tommy wanted to run after his brother, beg Frank to return the black pumpkin and get his nickel back, Listen here, the carver said fiercely, leaning forward once more. The old man was so thin and angular that Tommy was convinced he'd heard ancient bones scraping together within the inadequate padding of the desiccated body. Listen to me, boy. No, Tommy thought, no, I won't listen, I'll run, I'll run. The old man's power was like soldier, however, fusing Tommy to that piece of ground, rendering him incapable of movement. In the night, the carver said, his amber eyes darkening. Your brother's jack-o'-lantern will grow into something other than what it is now. Its jaws will work. Its teeth will sharpen. When everyone is asleep, it'll creep through your house and give what it's de- and give what's deserved. It'll come for you last of all. What do you think you deserve, Tommy? You see, I know your name, though your brother never used it. What do you think the black pumpkin will do to you, Tommy? Hm? What do you deserve? What are you, Tommy asked? The carver smiled. Dangerous. Suddenly, Tommy's feet tore loose of the earth to which they had been stuck, and he ran. When he caught up with Frank, he tried to persuade his brother to return the black pumpkin, but his explanation of the danger came out as nothing more than hysterical babbling, and Frank laughed at him. Tommy tried to knock the hateful thing out of Frank's hands. Frank held on to the jack-o'-lantern and gave Tommy a hard shove that sent him sprawling backward over a pile of pumpkins. Frank laughed again, purposefully tramped hard on Tommy's right foot as the younger boy struggled to get up and moved away. Through the involuntary tears wrung from him by the pain in his foot, Tommy looked toward the back of the lot and saw that the carver was watching. The old man waved. Heart-beating double time, Tommy limped out to the front of the lot, searching for a way to convince Frank of the danger. But Frank was already putting his purchase on the back seat of the Cadillac. Their father was paying for the jack-o'-lantern and for a score of uncarved pumpkins. Tommy was too late. At home, Frank took the black pumpkin into his bedroom and stood it on the desk in the the corner on the desk in the corner, under the poster of Michael Berriman as the demented killer in the hills have eyes. From, open, from the open doorway, Tommy watched. Frank had found a fat-scented decorative candle in the kitchen pantry. Now he put it inside the pumpkin. It was big enough to burn steadily for at least two days. Dreading the appearance of light in the jack-o'-lantern's eyes, Tommy watched as Frank lit the candle and put the pumpkin's stem-centered lid in place. The slitted pupils glowed, glowed, flickered, shimmered, with a convincing imitation of demonic life and malevolent intellect. The serrated grin blazed bright, and the fluttering light was like a tongue ceaselessly licking the cold-rind lips. The most disgusting part of the illusion of life was the leprous pit of a nose, which appeared to fill with moist, yellowish mucus. Incredible, Frank said, that old fart is a real genius at this stuff. The scented candle emitted the fragrance of roses— Although he could not remember where he had read of such a thing, Tommy recalled that the sudden, unexplained scent of roses supposedly indicated the presence of spirits of the dead. Of course, the source of this odor was no mystery. "'What the hell?' Frank said, wrinkling his nose. He lifted the lid of the jack-o'-lantern and peered inside. The inconstant orange light played across his face, queerly distorting his features. "'This is supposed to be a lemon-scented candle, not roses, not girly crap!' In the big, airy kitchen, Lois and Kyle Sitzman, Tommy's mother and father, were standing at the table with the caterer, Mr. Hauser. They were studying the menu for the flashy Halloween party that they were throwing the following night and loudly reminding Mr. Hauser that the food was to be prepared with the finest ingredients. Tommy circled behind them, hoping to remain invisible. He took a can of Coke from the refrigerator. Now, his mother and father were hammering the caterer about the need for everything to be impressive. eau- d'oeuvres flowers, the bar, the waiters' uniforms, and the buffet dinner must be so elegant and exquisite and drop dead perfect that every guest would feel himself to be in the home of a tr- in the home of true California aristocracy. This was not a party for kids. In fact, Tommy and Frank would be required to remain in their rooms tomorrow evening, permitted to engage only in the quietest activities. No television, no stereo, no slightest peep to draw attention to themselves. This party was strictly for the movers and shakers on whom Kyle Sutzman's political career depended. He was now a California state senator, but in next week's election, he was running for the United States Congress. This was a thank you party for his most generous financial backers and for the power brokers who had pulled strings to ensure his nomination the previous spring. Kids Verbatin. Tommy's parents seemed to want him around only at major campaign rallies, media photography sessions, and for a few minutes at the start of election night victory parties. That was okay with Tommy, he preferred to remain invisible. On those rare occasions when his folks took notice of him, they invariably disapproved of everything he said and did, every movement he made, every innocent expression that crossed his face. Lois said, Mr. Hauser, I hope we understand that large shrimp do not qualify as finger lobster. As the nervous caterer reassured Lois of the quality of his operation, Tommy sidled silently away from the refrigerator and quietly extracted two Milanos from the cookie jar. These are important people, Kyle, informed the caterer for the tenth time, substantial and sophisticated people, and they are accustomed to the very best. In school, Tommy had been taught that politics was the means by which many enlightened people chose to serve their fellow men. He knew that was baloney. His parents spent long evenings plotting his father's political career, and Tommy never once overheard either of them talking about serving the people or improving society. Oh, sure, in public, on campaign platforms, that was what they talked about. The rights of the masses, the hungry, the homeless, but never in private. Beyond the public eye, they endlessly discussed forming power bases and crushing the opposition and shoving this new law down their throats. To them and to all the people with whom they associated, politics was a way to gain respect, make some money, and most important, acquire power. Tommy understood why people liked to be respected, because he received no respect at all. He could see why having a lot of money was desirable, but he did not understand this power thing. He could not figure why anyone would waste a lot of time and energy trying to acquire power over other people. What fun could be gotten from ordering people around, telling them what to do? What if you told them to do the wrong thing, and then what if because of your orders people were hurt or wound up broke or something worse? And how could you expect people to like you if you had power over them? After all, Frank had power over Tommy, complete power, total control, and Tommy loathed him. Sometimes he thought he was the only sane person in the family. At other times, he wondered if they were all sane and, he, and if he was mad. Whatever the case, crazy or sane, Tommy always felt that he did not belong in the same house with his own family. As he slipped stealthily out of the kitchen with his can of Coke and two Milanos wrapped in a paper napkin, his parents were querying Mr. Hauser about the champagne. In the back hallway, Frank's door was open, and Tommy paused for a glimpse of the pumpkin. It was still there, fire in every aperture. What you got there, Frank asked, stepping into the doorway. He grabbed Tommy by the shirt, yanked him into the room, slammed the door, and confiscated the cookies and Coke. Thanks, Snotface," I was just thinking I could use a snack. He went to the desk and put the booty beside the glowing jack-o'-lantern. Taking a deep breath, "'stealing himself for what resistance would mean, Tommy said, "'Those are mine!' Frank pretended shock. "'Is my little brother a greedy glutton who doesn't know how to share? "'Give me back my Coke and cookies!' Frank's grin seemed filled with shark's teeth. "'Good heavens, dear brother, I think you need to be taught a lesson. "'Greedy little gluttons have to be shown the path of enlightenment.' Tommy would have preferred to walk away, to let Frank win, to go back to the kitchen and fetch another Coke and more cookies, but he knew that his life, already intolerable, would get far worse if he didn't make an effort, no matter how futile, to stand up to this stranger who was supposedly his brother. Total, willing capitulation would inflame Frank and encourage him to be even more of a bully than he already was. I want my cookies and my... "'I want my cookies and my Coke,' Tommy insisted, wondering if any cookies, even Milano's, were worth dying for. Frank rushed him. They fell to the floor, pummeling each other, rolling, kicking, but producing little noise. They didn't want to draw their folks' attention. Tommy was reluctant to let his parents know what was happening because they would invariably blame the ruckus on him. Athletic, well-tanned Frank was their dream child, their favorite son, and he could do no wrong.' Frank probably wanted to keep the battle secret because their father would put a stop to it, thereby spoiling the fun. Throughout the tussle, Tommy had brief glimpses of the glowing jack-o'-lantern, which gazed down on them, and he was sure that its grin grew steadily wider, wider. At last, Tommy was driven into a corner, beaten and exhausted. Straddling him, Frank slapped him once, hard, rattling his senses, then tore at Tommy's clothes, pulling them off, "'No!' Tommy whispered when he realized that in addition to being beaten, he was to be humiliated. "'No! No!' He struggled with what little strength he still possessed, but his shirt was stripped off. His jeans and underwear were yanked down. With his pants tangled around his sneakers, he was pulled to his feet and half-carried across the room. Frank threw open the door, pitched Tommy into the hallway, and called out, "'Oh, Maria! Maria, can you come here a moment, please?' Maria was the twice-a-week maid who came in to clean and do the ironing. This was one of her days. Maria! Naked, terrified of being humiliated in front of the maid, Tommy scrambled to his feet, grabbed his pants, tried to run and pull up his jeans at the same time, stumbled, fell, and sprang up again. Maria, can you come here, please? Frank asked, barely able to get the words out between gales of laughter. Gasping, whimpering tommy somehow reached his room and got out of sight before maria appeared for a while he leaned against the closed door holding up his jeans with both hands shivering with their parents off at a campaign appearance tommy and frank ate dinner together after heating up a casserole that maria had left in the refrigerator ordinarily dinner with frank was an ordeal but this time it proved to be uneventful As he ate, Frank was engrossed in a magazine that reported on the latest horror movies with heavy emphasis on slice-and-dice films and with lots of color photographs of mutilated and blood-soaked bodies. He seemed oblivious of Tommy. Later, when Frank was in the bathroom preparing for bed, Tommy sneaked into his older brother's room and stood at the desk studying the jack-o'-lantern. The wicked mouth glowed. The narrow pupils were alive with fire. The scent of roses filled the room, but underlying that odor was another more subtle and less appealing fragrance that he could not quite identify. Tommy was aware of a malevolent presence, something even worse than the malevolence that he could always sense in Frank's room. A cold current raced through his blood. Suddenly, he was certain that the potential murderous power of the black pumpkin was enhanced by the candle within it. Somehow, the presence of light inside its shell was dangerous, a triggering factor. Tommy did not know how he knew this, but he was convinced that if he was to have the slightest chance of surviving the coming night, he must extinguish the flame. He grasped the gnarled stem and removed the lid from the top of the jack-o'-lantern's skull. Light did not merely rise from inside the pumpkin, but seemed to be flung at him, hot on his face, stinging his eyes. He blew out the flame. The jack-o'-lantern went dark. Immediately, Tommy felt better. He put the lid in place. As he let go of the stem, the candle relit spontaneously. Stunned, he jumped back. Light shone from the carved eyes, the nose, the mouth. No, he said softly. He removed the lid and blew out the candle once more. A moment of darkness within the pumpkin. Then, before his eyes, the flame reappeared. Reluctantly, issuing a thin involuntary sound of distress, Tommy reached into the jack-o'-lantern to snuff the stubborn candle with his thumb and finger. (laughs) He was convinced that the pumpkin shell would suddenly snap shut around his wrist, severing his hand, leaving him with a bloody stump. Or perhaps it would hold him fast while swiftly dissolving the flesh from his fingers, and then release him with an arm that terminated in a skeletal hand. Driven toward the brink of hysteria by these fears, he pinched the wick, extinguished the flame, and snatched his hand back with a sob of relief, grateful to have escaped mutilation. He jammed the lid in place, and hearing the toilet flush in the adjacent bath, hurried out of the room. He dared not let Frank catch him there. As he stepped into the hallway, he glanced back at the the jack-o'-lantern, and of course it was full of candlelight again. He went straight to the kitchen and got a butcher's knife, which he took back to his own room and hid beneath his pillow. He was sure that he would need it sooner or later in the dead hours before dawn. His parents came home shortly before midnight. Tommy was sitting in bed, his room illuminated only by the pale bulb of the low-wattage nightlight. The butcher's knife was at his side, under the covers, and his hand was resting on the haft. For twenty minutes, Tommy could hear his folks talking, running water, flushing toilets, closing doors. Their bedroom and bath were at the opposite end of the house from his and Frank's rooms, so the noises they made were muffled, but nonetheless reassuring. These were the ordinary noises of daily life, and as long as the house was filled with them, no weird lantern-eyed predator could be stalking anyone. Soon, however, quiet returned. In the post-midnight stillness, Tommy waited for the first scream. He was determined not to fall asleep, but he was only twelve years old, and he was exhausted after a long day, and drained by the sustained terror that had gripped him ever since he had seen the mummy-faced pumpkin carver. Propped against a pile of pillows, he dozed off long before one o'clock, and something thumped, waking him. He was instantly alert he sat straight up in bed, clutching the butcher's knife. For a moment, he was certain that the sound had originated within his own room. Then he heard it again, a solid thump, and he knew that it had come from Frank's room across the hall. He threw aside the covers and sat on the edge of the bed, tense, waiting, listening. Once he thought he heard Frank calling his name, Tommy! A desperate and frightened and barely audible cry that seemed to come from the far rim of a vast canyon. Perhaps he imagined it. Silence. His hands were slick with sweat. He put the big knife aside and blotted his palms on his pajamas. Silence. He picked up the knife again. He reached under his bed and found the flashlight he kept there, but he did not switch it on. He eased cautiously to the door and listened for a movement. Listened for movement in the hollow in the hallway beyond nothing an inner voice urged him to return to bed, pull the covers over his head, and forget forget what he had heard. Better yet he could crawl under the bed and hope that he would not be found, but he knew this was the voice of the wimp within, and he dared not hope for salvation and cowardice. If the black pumpkin had grown into something else, and if it was now loose in the house, it would respond to timidity with no less savage glee than Frank would have shown. God, he thought fervently, there's a boy down here who believes in you, and he'd be very disappointed if you happened to be looking the other way right now when he really, really, really needs you. Tommy quietly turned the knob and opened the door. The hallway, illuminated only by the moonlight that streamed through the window at the end, was deserted. Directly across the hall, the door to Frank's room stood open. Still not switching on the flashlight, desperately hoping that his presence would would go undetected if he was mantled in darkness, he stepped to Frank's doorway and listened. Frank usually snored, but no no snoring could be heard tonight. If the jack-o'-lantern was in there, the candle had been extinguished at last, for no flickering paraffin light was visible. Tommy crossed crossed the threshold moonlight silvered the window and the palm frond shadows of a wind-stirred tree danced on the glass in the room no object was clearly outlined mysterious shapes loomed in shades of dark gray and black he took one step two three his heart pounded so hard that it shattered his resolve to cloak himself in darkness He snapped on the Ever-Ready and was startled by the way the butcher's knife in his right hand reflected the light. He swept the beam around the room, and to his relief saw no crouching monstrosity. The sheets and blankets were tumbled in a pile on the mattress, and he had to take another step toward the bed before he was able to ascertain that Frank was not there. The severed hand was on the floor by the nightstand. Tommy saw it in the penumbra of the flashlight, and he brought the beam to bear directly on it. He stared in shock. Frank's hand—no doubt about its identity, because Frank's treasured silver skull and crossbones ring gleamed brightly on one slug white finger. It was curled into a tight fist. Perhaps powered by a post-mortem nerve spasm, perhaps energized by darker forces, the fisted hand suddenly opened, fingers unfolding like the spreading petals of a flower— and the palm was a single, shiny nickel. Tommy stifled a wild shriek, but could not repress a series of violent shudders. As he frantically tried to decide which escape route might be safest, he heard his mother scream from the far end of the house. Her shrill cry was abruptly cut off. Something crashed. Tommy turned toward the doorway of Frank's room. He knew that he should run before it was too late, but he was as welded to this spot as he had been to that bit of dusty ground in the pumpkin lot when the carver had insisted on telling him what the jack-o'-lantern would become during the lonely hours of the night. He heard his father shout, a gunshot. His father screamed. This scream was also cut short. Silence again. Tommy tried to lift one foot, just one, an inch, just an inch off the floor, but it would not be lifted. He sensed that more than fear was holding him down, that some malevolent spell prevented him from escaping the black pumpkin. A door slammed at the other end of the house. Footsteps sounded in the hall, heavy, scraping footsteps. Tears slipped out of Tommy's eyes and down his cheeks. In the hall, the floorboards creaked and groaned as if under great weight. "'Staring at the open door with no less terror "'than if he had been gazing into the entrance of hell, "'Tommy saw flickering orange light in the corridor. "'The glow grew brighter as the source. "'No doubt a candle drew nearer from the left, "'from the direction of his parents' bedroom. Amorphous shadow and eerie snakes of light "'crawled on the hall carpet. "'The heavy footsteps slowed, stopped. "'Judging by the light, "'the thing was only a foot or two from the doorway.' "'Tommy swallowed hard and worked up enough spit to say, "'Who's there?' but was surprised to hear himself say instead, "'Okay, damn you, let's get it over with.' "'Perhaps his years in the Sutsman house had toughened him more thoroughly "'and had made him more fatalistic than he had previously realized. "'The creature lurched into view, filling the doorway. "'Its head was formed by the jack-o'-lantern which had undergone hideous mutations.' That peculiar pate had retained its black and orange colouring, and its gourd-like shape, narrower at the top than at the bottom, and all the tumorous nodules were as crusted and disgusting as ever. However, though it had been as large as any pumpkin that Tommy had ever seen, it was now only about the size of a basketball, shriveled. The eyes had sagged, although the, splitted pupils were, although the slitted pupils were still narrow and mean. The nose was bubbling with some vile mucus, The immense mouth stretched from ear to ear, for it had remained large while the rest of the face had shrunk around it. In the orange light that streamed out between them, the hooked fangs appeared to have been transformed from points of pumpkin rind into hard, sharp protuberances of bone. The body under the head was vaguely humanoid, although it seemed to be composed of thick, gnarled roots and tangled vines. The beast appeared to be immensely strong, a colossus, a fierce juggernaut if it wished to be. Even in his terror, Tommy was filled with awe. He wondered if the creature's body had grown from the substance in its previously enormous pumpkin head, and more pointedly from the flesh of Frank, Lois, and Kyle Sutzman. Worst of all was the orange light within the skull. The candle still burned in there. Its leaping flames emphasized the impossible emptiness of the head. "'How could the thing move and think without a brain?' "'And invested a savage and demonic awareness in its eyes. "'The nightmarish vision raised one thick, twisted, powerful, vine-like arm "'and thrust a root-like finger at Tommy. "'You,' it said in a deep, whispery voice "'that called to mind the sound of wet slush pouring down a drain. "'Tommy was now less surprised by his inability to move "'than by his ability to stand erect. "'His legs felt like rags.' He was sure that he was going to collapse in a helpless heap while the thing descended upon him, but somehow he remained on his feet with the flashlight in one hand and the butcher's knife in the other. The knife, useless, the sharpest blade in the world would never harm harm this adversary. So Tommy let the knife slip out of his sweaty fingers. It clattered to the floor. You, the black pumpkin repeated, and in its voice and its voice reverberated most moistly throughout the room. Your vicious brother got what he gave. Your mother got what she gave. Your father got what he gave. I fed on them, sucked the brains out of their heads, chewed up their flesh, dissolved their bones. Now what do you deserve? Tommy could not speak. He was shaking and weeping silently and dragging each breath into his lungs only with tremendous effort. The black pumpkin lurched out of the doorway and into the room, looming over him, eyes blazing. It stood nearly seven feet tall and had to tilt its lantern head to peer down at him. Curls of sooty black smoke from the candle wick escaped between its fangs and from its leprous nose. Speaking in a rough whisper, yet with such force that its words vibrated the window panes, the thing said, "'Unfortunately, you are a good boy, and I've no right or license to feed on you. So what you deserve is what you've got from now on. Freedom.' Tommy stared up into the Halloween face, striving hard to grasp what he had been told. "'Freedom,' the demonic beast repeated. "'Freedom from Frank and Lois and Kyle. Freedom to grow up without their heels pressing down on you.' freedom to be the best that you can be, which means I'll most likely never get a chance to feed on you. For a long time, they stood face to face, boy and beast, and gradually Tommy achieved complete understanding. In the morning, his parents and brother would be missing, never to be found, a great and enduring mystery. Tommy would have to live with his grandparents. You get what you give. But maybe, the black pumpkin said, putting one cold hand upon Tommy's shoulder, Maybe there's some rottenness in you, too. And maybe someday you'll surrender to it, and maybe in time I'll still have my chance with you. Dessert. Its wide grin grew even wider. Now get back to your bed and sleep. Sleep. Simultaneously horrified and filled with strange delight, Tommy crossed the room to the doorway, moving as if in a dream. He looked back and saw that the black pumpkin was still watching him with interest. Tommy said... You missed a bit and pointed to the floor beside his brother's nightstand. The beast looked at Frank's severed hand. Ah, said the black pumpkin, snatching up the hand and stuffing that grisly morsel into its mouth. The flame within the squashy skull suddenly burned very bright, a hundred times brighter than before, then was extinguished. A Moonlit Night with Rats by Elizabeth Ingström I grew up tortured literally the only girl with five older brothers I was alternately experimented upon humiliated and continually put in harm's way I was also cherished and protected as only five big brothers can do as a result I grew up hoyden hoydenish I envied my brothers physical prowess their lithe grace the easy way they handled snakes guns and beer I tried to be just like them but I wasn't I was a girl plump, uncoordinated, easily scared, not at all athletic. When we were little, my mother always made them take me with them. I loved it. They hated having a little sister tag along, and they tortured me for it. I loved that too, in a way. The Halloween when I was thirteen, too old for trick-or-treating, too young for the beer busts, two of my brothers, the two closest to my age, the two most vicious, got together with two of their friends in our backyard. I was inside, getting the candy ready for the neighborhood, kids, looking out the patio doors at them with envy as they lounged around on the lawn furniture in their sweatshirts and jeans. I had budding breasts and lank hair and was so self-conscious I didn't even want to look at those brothers because they were always teasing me and doing it in front of their friends. Just at twilight, as the doorbell began to ring and our little dog barked every time as if it were a fresh surprise... "'Rob, my 15-year-old brother, came in "'and asked me if I wanted to go out with them that night. "'Suspicious, I asked where. "'To the dump, he said, to shoot rats. "'With them, I asked, pointing at his friends "'who were watching us through the window. "'Yeah,' Rob said, "Van "'Van wanted me to invite you. "'Why?' Rob shrugged. "'Figure it out. Did Van like me? "'I was staggered by the thought "'and hammered by the implications. "'Sure,' I said, "'I'll go.' "'I looked outside, and Van smiled at me he didn't seem so bad. I grabbed my jacket and handed the bowl of candy to my mom. I'm going out with Rob and Christian, I said, then didn't wait for her questions or her protests. I'd learned how to handle the parents by watching the brothers. Van opened the back door of Mike's beat-up black Chevy for me and hopped in next to me. Rob got in the other side and my other brother, Christian, got in the front with Mike and we took off. We had always gone to the dump when we were kids. It was within bike-riding distance, and it had awesome scavenging scavenging potentials. One time, I found a perfect antique oil lamp, but the boys broke the glass. One time, they came home with a shoebox full of green snakes, and they smuggled it past Mom into the basement. The next day, the box was empty, and they threatened me with death if I told. I never did. I hadn't been to the dump in years. "'It was full dark by the time we parked, and Mike handed around a six-pack of fosters. "'I sat quietly in the back, feeling the heat of Van's body next to me, "'listening to their easy laughter and smelling their testosterone. "'I drank the beer, which tasted mighty fine, but it wasn't long before the inevitable happened. "'I had to pee. I waited until the squirming point.' hoping that one of the other boys would have to go first, and instead of listening to them talk and laugh, I concentrated on how I would go about the act. If I tried to go too far from the car, they'd pull around and shine the headlights on me, or something equally as humiliating. Eventually, I figured it out. I nudged Rob and had him let me out, and I pulled a tissue from my jeans and squatted right at the rear of the car, my hand on the trunk. I figured I would be safe there, but I was wrong. "'No sooner had I got my pants down than the car started up and gravel spit at me, and they were off, "'their laughter ringing in my ears like demon shouts from hell. "'Van didn't really like me, I realized. "'This would just be a good Halloween prank. "'Dump the kid's sister at the dump. "'I finished peeing and then used the tissue to blow my nose. "'I found an old mattress to sit on while I weighed my options. "'I'd wait for them until I didn't want to wait anymore, and then I'd walk home. "'It wasn't that far.' but my heart was broken, so I sat on that old mattress and cried for a while first. They didn't come back. Of course they didn't come back, and I sat there until I began to like it. The dump had a certain majesty in the Halloween moonlight. During the day, the place was hot. its stank and was filled with noisy, screeching seagulls, but at night, on this night, I could barely smell it, and its strange landscape shone silvery in the moonlight. I could see the rats as big as beavers rustling through the plastic sacks. I stomped my feet at them if they got too close, and once they found out that I moved, they seemed content to leave me alone. I spent a lot of time sitting on that nasty old mattress until long after I was sure the little ghosts and goblins had finished ringing the doorbell and making Chica bark. I thought about my family, my friends, my brothers and their friends. I thought about my approaching womanhood and realized that I could decide what kind of a woman I would be, and that the options were endless. I didn't have to be a tomboy. I didn't have to be ashamed of my breasts or my klutzy ways. I didn't have to be able to jump over barbed wire fences. I didn't have to pretend delight in the killing of little furry things. I could try a few things like earrings and lipsticks, things that had. Things that had intrigued me, but which also had intimidated me. That girly stuff seemed to come come so easy to some. When I sat down on that mattress, I was the tortured plaything of a bunch of bullies, and when I stood up, I felt as though my life had become my own. I felt adventurous in a completely different way. And when I heard footsteps on the road and identified the silhouette as Vans, I didn't hide and throw things at him, as was my first impulse. Instead, I stood up and walked toward him. He had left the others in the woods and walked all the way back to the dump to see if I was all right. By the time we reached my house, he was holding my hand and I felt poised on the brink of self. My personal year begins and ends on Halloween. That is when I make my New Year's resolutions. That is the season when I take risks and plan for the future i first met my husband on halloween it is also the day i send greeting cards to my wonderful brothers now that they're grown and sit for a few minutes every year and wonder whatever happened to van i wonder also if he has a special affinity for that day as well because as sure as i grew up that night surrounded by rats so did he the lantern marsh by poppy z bright the marsh brooded on the outskirts of town we children sometimes played there during the day, pulling flat-bottomed boats through the dark water choked with swamp hyacinth, stranding ourselves on any of the hundreds of tiny islands. By day, the marsh was a place of filtering, shafting patches of sunlight, shifting patches of sunlight, cypress and live oak bearded with Spanish moss. "'velvety brown cattails that would burst into clouds of white snow "'if you smacked them against the back of your friend's head, "'and unfounded rumors of quicksand pools full of skeletons and treasure. "'At night, the lanterns took over. "'Our parents forbade us to go into the marsh at night.' Usually, this rule needed no enforcing, but at one time or another, most of us had worked up enough courage to creep to the edge of the marsh with a group of friends, stare for a while at the bright globes of light hovering over the water, and then run away as fast as our legs could carry us. Later, we would laugh and call one another Frady Cat, but not until we were back home in somebody's warm, well-lit room. After all, no one really knew what the lanterns were. Our science teachers dismissed them as swamp gas, but hardly anybody believed that, or what they could do, if in fact they wanted to do anything besides hover and shimmer, be beautiful, luminous ghosts. We had lived in the town named after this marsh all our lives. Our first encounter with Mr. Prudhomme, and the first indication I had that Noel was perhaps not entirely sane about the marsh, took place on a Halloween afternoon when we, Noel, Bronwyn, and me, Phil, were all ten years old. School had let out early that day. By some obscure tradition, Halloween and Lantern Marsh had always been a big occasion for the kids, maybe just because there wasn't really much for us to do the rest of the year, so the schools scheduled half a day or canceled altogether. The three of us were walking down the town's main street, enjoying the tangy autumn flavor of the air. This was the deep south, and Halloween often felt more like August, but this year we were having a decent, cool season. Bronwyn and I were talking about the costumes we were going to wear that night. Noel, who never went trick-or-treating, walked silently along beside us, hands shoved in pockets, thinking his, thinking his private thoughts. "'Suddenly he stopped in his tracks and stared across the street. "'Look, look, there he is!' "'We were used to Noel's intense reactions, "'but this time we had no idea what he might be reacting to. "'Who?' I asked. "'Noel jerked his head toward a shop door on the other side of the street "'where a tall, red-haired man stood talking to the shopkeeper. "'That's George Prudholm, the guy who runs that building company, "'Marshwood Development. He's a fucking bastard.' "'Noel,' said Bronwyn, "'well, he is. He owns half the land the marsh is on. Last year, right after Halloween, he told my mother I'd been trespassing on his land. I didn't even go into the marsh. I was just watching the lanterns like I always do. But she bawled me out anyway. This year, I told her I was going out trick-or-treating with you guys. Noel had lived with his mother for seven years, ever since his father left for parts unknown.' She was a big, ruddy woman who always smelled of cigarettes, and she frightened me and Bronwyn a little, but she and Noel had negotiated an uneasy peace. "'Why don't you come out with us?' I said. "'Seems like that'd be a lot more fun than watching those old lanterns again. Although I knew the lanterns were magic to Noel, I couldn't conceive of not wanting to go trick-or-treating.' "'The idea of coming home at the end of the night empty-handed "'with no laden plastic bag into which you could stick your face "'and breathe the odor of all kinds of candy mingling. "'But Noel just shook his head. "'Bronwyn tucked a scrap of yellow hair behind her ear "'as she looked across the street at Prudholm. "'That man wants to hurt you, Noel.' "'I looked at her, puzzled. "'Why had she said that?' "'But the red-haired man was beckoning to Noel. "'Bronwyn clutched at Noel's arm. "'Don't go!' It's okay, Bronn. He can't hurt me here. Noel crossed the street and stood in front of the big man, fists on hips, dark, shaggy head thrown back, looking ridiculously small. Pritholm said something to him, and Noel shook his head no. After a moment or two, Bronwyn and I relaxed. It looked like they were just going to have a conversation after all. But then Noel began to shout, You can't do it, you dirty shit! I know you can't because you only own half of it, and if you ever try, I'll kill you. I swear I will. Pretholm stared obliquely down at him. When Noel turned and ran back to her, back to us, I saw that his features were contorted with rage, close to tears. Without waiting to see whether we would follow, he started off down the street. His back held stiff and straight. We hurried after him, not knowing what else to do. When we caught up with him, all three of us strode along in silence for several minutes. Then Bronwyn, always the peacemaker, touched Noel's shoulder and asked, "'What did he say?' Noel scowled. "'He told me to stay away from the marsh tonight, like he always does if he sees me around Halloween. But I don't care what he says. He'll never know. He's too scared to go near the marsh on Halloween night. And he ought to be scared, too, because I bet they hate him as much as I do.' "'They?' He meant the lanterns, I realized.' "'Though I knew how they obsessed him, "'I'd never known that he believed they could love or hate. "'But this realization was overshadowed by another. "'That's not what made you so mad,' I said. "'Noel gazed at me. "'The expression on his face now was more fear than fury. "'He said, "'He said some day he was going to fill in the marsh. "'His lips trembled, and he bit at them, swallowing hard. "'Finally he cried. "'And well he might, "'for Noel had lived at the edge of the marsh all his life.' his house was closer to it than any other in town. Ever since Bronwyn and I had made friends with him in the first grade, we had been familiar with his fierce hatreds and equally fierce loves, his wild plans that always seemed to work, the mixture of sadness and rage that always seemed to linger just below the surface of his eyes, and his utter refusal to go trick-or-treating on Halloween night instead he would sit for hours at the edge of the water and watch the lanterns as if they were his own personal light show on halloween he claimed they were at their most spectacular spirits could visit the living world on halloween and noel had always thought the lanterns were spirits there were hundreds of the great glowing balls and more mirrored in the dark water they darted and showered sparks and made the whole marsh glow, and most of us had grandparents or other older relatives who'd assured us that anyone foolish enough, to, foolish enough to go into the marsh on the spirits' night would come wouldn't come out again. Noel brushed off all these warnings. He didn't go into the marsh on Halloween. He only wanted to watch. He was never able to explain this to the satisfaction of me and Bronwyn, who loved our conventional costumed Halloween as much as any other kid's. It took us a few years to realize that Halloween was a time of magic for Noel too. Magic far more potent than ours. After the night's adventures, we crept to the edge of the marsh with the taste of candy in our mouths and the smell of burning pumpkin flesh still trailing behind us. Bronwyn was a yellow-haired gypsy rattling loads of costume jewelry. I was a black-masked bandit marred by my my mother's strips of orange reflecting reflecting tape. We would never have gone alone to the marsh on halloween night but knowing that noel would be there we felt protected somehow noel i whispered into the darkness something white rose up behind a tree bronwyn gave a little shriek but the flapping sheep said and waved us over when we got to him i saw that noel was in costume presumably to fool his mother he was dressed all in white with white smudges of makeup smeared around his dark dark eyes "'If the spookiness of the marsh itself hadn't scared any intruders, Noel might have. "'Bronwyn held out an extra bag, heavy with candy corn and miniature chocolate bars. "'We brought you some.' "'Noel accepted the bag like a prince and gave us one of his rare smiles. "'Thanks.' "'He He considered us for a moment and apparently found us worthy. "'Do you want to see them?' "'I hesitated, but Bronwyn nodded. "'Noel led us to his spot behind the tree. "'I looked into the depths of the marsh and saw nothing.' "'Bronwyn glanced off to the left and said, "'Oh!' enthralled, for there they were, "'the hovering, darting, colored globes. "'They drew closer as we watched. "'Deathless black water reflected them back a hundred times over, "'rippling and shimmering. "'Their pale light spilled between the trees, "'bathing our faces. "'Tiny lanterns danced in Noel's eyes. "'For the first time, I knew that he wanted to join them, "'whatever the price of that joining might be.' But he had always been adamant about looking after his mother, who would be alone without him. For now, at least, he would have to content himself with these nighttime glimpses. We watched the lanterns dance for what felt like hours until I heard my mother calling me home from blocks away. Eventually, Bronwyn and I graduated from trick or treating to costume parties at our friends' houses. Noel, though, still spent his rapt nights at the edge of the marsh each Halloween. He and George Prodom glared at each other when they met in the drugstore or the Central Park Cafe, but as far as I knew, no more words passed between them. We moved up from elementary school to the county-consolidated junior high, where Noel's strangeness was judged less acceptable by kids who hadn't known him most of his life. Noel refused to even try to act normal, and so he was tormented. "'The three C's of adolescence,' he said to us more than once, "'clothes, cliques, and cruelty.' "'But he answered the teasing with sarcasm or indifference. "'Being ignored only made his tormentors angrier, "'and if he had to, Noel would fight. "'He usually won, too. "'Noel was skinny but wiry, "'and he clawed at his opponents with a mad abandon "'that usually kept them from challenging him twice. "'By the time we got to high school, "'most people left Noel alone.' He would never be accepted, but acceptance wasn't something he needed. More and more often, instead of going to the Pep Club meetings or basketball games that had captivated us earlier in our teens, Bronwyn and I would join Noel in his room after school to listen to the Beatles, the Doors, Jimi Hendrix. We were learning that we didn't need acceptance that we didn't need acceptance either. The three of us, now as close again as we had been in childhood, decided to form a band. Bronwyn could play the guitar a little, and I began to get interested in drumming, something I'd previously practiced on the edges of desks and dinner tables. My parents bought me a used set, good enough to start out on, for fifty dollars. Noel needed no instrument. He had a high wail of a singing voice, huge and soulful and strangely beautiful. Our name, of course, was The Lanterns. We played at a couple of school dances, doing mostly Beatles and Stones covers, but also a few songs Noel had written himself. We weren't well received by the dance crowds, and after our first two gigs, we were we were replaced by another garage band that played 50s hits and beach music. Noel didn't care. He had never been concerned about performing in public anyway, especially to a high school audience. He had only agreed to it because the idea excited me and Bronwyn. We didn't play any more gigs, but the Lanterns lasted through the summer after our high school graduation. Then Bronwyn and I went to the State University, and Noel, who was planning to major in music, went to a small liberal arts college about 100 miles away from Lantern Marsh. His mother wasn't happy to see him go, but as he had received a full scholarship, she could do nothing to stop him. At the State School, Bronwyn and I met crowds of new people, but we always came back to each other. Noel wrote us long letters about learning to play guitar and piano, which he liked, and the atmosphere at his college, elite and self-consciously eccentric, which he claimed to dislike, but even he had to admit it beat high school. I bought a second-hand green Volkswagen Bug. Bronwyn got her ears pierced. Things went smoothly until our fall break when we were pleased to find out that Noel would be coming home at the same time we would. "'Driving home, I gave half my attention to Bronwyn "'and half to worrying about my bald tires. "'My parents had offered to replace them while I was home, "'but I wasn't even sure they would last out the trip. "'As we approached Lantern Marsh, my worry was interrupted. "'Bronwyn gasped and craned forward in her seat. "'Phil, look!' "'We were entering town by a road that went past a far edge of the marsh. "'The marsh was still there, of course, but it was changed, weakened.' Instead of a line of cypress and oak, I saw stumps, red mud, bulldozers, and dump trucks. A large patch of land had been filled and cleared. A billboard announced in foot-high red letters, Future site of Marshwood Mall, a property of Marshwood Development. At home, my father confirmed my fears. George Prothom bought the rest of the marsh. Shame to tear it up if you ask me, but it wasn't making the town any money. People say he's having the whole thing filled in to build a new shopping center with a double-decker parking lot. You used to have a friend who liked the marsh, didn't you, Phil? When I called Noel's house, his mother said he wouldn't be home until the next day. Her voice on the phone was a little more than a faint wheeze, and I wondered if she was thinking of what Prothom's plans might do to her son. Bronwyn had gone out to dinner at the Three Lanterns Steakhouse with her family. My mom had fixed a welcome home meal of pork chops, mashed potatoes, and strawberry shortcake, all my favorites. I wasn't able to enjoy it much. My parents could tell I was worried, but they thought it must be they thought it must have something to do with school. Of course, I wasn't thinking about school at all. I was wondering what in the world we were going to say to Noel tomorrow and whether it would do any good. As it turned out, we didn't have to break the news to him. His bus had come into town by the same road we'd used, so he already knew. His mother looked awful when she let us in. She'd always been a fleshy woman and still was, but now the flesh seemed to sag off her bones. Her color was high and unhealthy-looking, as if she'd been running a fever. He's in his room, she told us. Hasn't hardly been out since he got here. Bronwyn knocked on the door. Come in, said said Noel hollowly. He was sitting in the dark. Well, not quite. He had put his red light bulb on, in the bedside lamp. It cast a bloody glow over the room, but offered little illumination. Noel's eyes were nothing but dark hollows in his angular face. What are you going to do, Bronwyn asked, putting her hand on his arm. Kill Prud'um, he said without fervor. Nine years ago, I told him I'd kill him if he ever tried this. Now I've got to do it. This made me impatient. Come on, Noel. You can't kill Protum. What would that accomplish? You'd go to jail, and the mall would get built anyway. Noel nodded. I wasn't sure he'd heard me, but he already knew the truth of what I said. He stared at a poster on the wall behind Bronwyn and me. Jim Morrison and his lizard king pose. What am I going to do, you? What am I going to do, you ask? I'm going to sit here and watch Protum tear up the marsh. Maybe they'll be able to stop him. Maybe not. If I could join him, I'd damn well stop him. "'You mean the lanterns?' Bronwyn asked timidly, but we all knew what he meant. Noel had always wanted to join the lanterns, to become one with them, but his mother would be alone in the world without him. Now I wondered if even that would be enough to keep him here. He lay lay back on his bed. "'Listen, I need to think. Can you leave me alone for a while?' We nodded and left silently. It was the first time Noel had ever sent us away.' "'The next afternoon, as I was leaving the house, "'my father stopped me with a stricken look on his face. "'Have you talked to your friend, Noel? "'Not today, but I was just going over there. "'You won't find him at his house.' "'Why not?' Dad sighed. "'Phil, Noel's mother died last night. "'She had a stroke, was gone right away. Noel called 911, but when the ambulance got there, "'they couldn't find him. "'No one's seen the boy since.' "'A thought nudged me. "'With exams right before the break, "'I'd lost track of dates.' "'What what day is this?' "'The 31st,' my father said, and I couldn't believe I'd forgotten. "'Bronwyn!' I yelled, still half a block away and glimpsing her yellow hair through the foliage that masked her front porch. Soon we were running toward the marsh where it came closest to Noel's house. We hunted up one of the flat-bottomed boats we hadn't used since we were twelve or so. Awkwardly, too heavy for the boats, we pulled through the edges of the marsh, calling Noel's name.' He could be anywhere, but I wanted to find him before nightfall. Because now, with his mother gone, there was nothing to hold him here. It felt as though we were, co- it felt as though we covered miles of the marsh. Sometimes poling, and sometimes just letting the boat drift. Starting with hope at every bird sound and frog ripple, as the sky between the trees deepened into twilight, our courage failed. We dragged the boat back up onto solid ground behind Noel's house. "'Blocks away, we heard the shouts of early trick-or-treaters. "'Something white rose up behind a tree. "'I came to say goodbye,' said Noel. "'As he had been years ago, he was dressed all in white. "'There were no theatrical smudges of makeup around his eyes this time, "'just dark circles of exhaustion. "'He'd been up all night, I could tell. "'I knew you would come here, but I can't stay long. "'I couldn't go without saying goodbye.' "'Don't go,' I said. "'You know I have to.' "'He leaned toward Bronwyn and kissed her lips. "'Then he turned to me, and I hugged him as hard as I could. "'I might have been able to hold him back at that moment, but I didn't try. "'I let him go. Goodbye, bye "'Phil,' he whispered, and his voice broke just a little on my name. "'Then he stepped into our little boat, "'and standing easily pushed himself away from the land. "'He was far better at it than we had been, "'shifting his weight with the water. "'He knew this marsh so well.' Soon the boat was invisible through the moss-fringed trees. We could just make out the white form of Noel guiding it between the shadowy hummocks of grass. The lanterns flickered in the distance. We could tell when Noel reached them because they began to dance. Their colors grew brighter as if disturbed at the intruder in their midst. Bronwyn's hand tightened on my arm and I covered it with my own. Noel began to sing to the lanterns. At first his voice reached us like a thread of leftover summer breeze, faint but sweet. Then it grew stronger, and though I couldn't make out the words, I knew Noel had pinned them himself. His voice was hoarse and high, more gorgeous than ever. In it was the Arcadian splendor of the marsh and its spookiness, the joy it had brought him and the anguish he felt at losing it, the pure golden glory of the lanterns themselves. It was a tribute and a plea. We could see his tiny form in the distance, the lanterns surrounding him, weaving around him, dancing to Noel's song. "'Now, now, now!' I heard him shriek, and the lanterns suddenly grew brighter than we'd ever seen them, so bright we could not look at them. We turned away, shielding our eyes from what might have been a small supernova in the heart of the marsh. When we looked back, the blinding light had vanished. Noel and the lanterns were gone.' no one in town expected to see noel again they figured he'd either gone back to his arty school or drown in the fabled quicksand of the marsh on halloween night and no one outside of our tiny circle much cared but a week later just before bronwyn and i were due back at school lantern marsh discovered that one of its more solid citizens had gone missing The police wouldn't do anything for 24 hours, so Marshwood Development organized its own search party. Rumor had it that things hadn't been going well at the company, and perhaps they were nervous. They had reason. Before the day was out, they found George Prodom hanged from the heavy limb of an oak tree in the middle of the marsh, his thick neck stretched by hemp, his red hair shivering in the wind. (laughs) Some tried to call it murder and blame it on the vanished Noel. There were plenty who recalled his hatred of the man, but his foreman at the company said Protum had refused to go into the marsh for days, and the pharmacist revealed that he'd filled a prescription of strong sleeping pills for Protum. General consensus was that the man had been afraid of something, and who could they blame for the bulldozer whose engine suffered irreparable, imposable impossible, not impossible, impossible rust damage overnight, or the fire that broke out at the offices of Marshwood Development, nearly killing a file clerk. Prudhomme's vice president told the local newspaper, we're superstitious, but we're not stupid either. Marshwood Development has sold the entire parcel of land to the federal government to be turned into a wildlife sanctuary. It's a beauty of a tax write-off. My father, an accountant at the paper, told us the man had actually said a wet dream of a tax write-off, and my mother nearly choked with laughter at the dinner table. As for me and Bronwyn, well, on the night before we had to return to school, we took a walk along the deserted main street of the town. We passed the doorway where Noel had shouted at Prudhomme, the drugstore where we had read horror comics and eaten ice cream, the school where Noel had taken his torment like a stu- like a stoic, we deliberately avoided Noël's empty house and the marsh near it, but as we were about to turn down the street that would return us home, Bronwyn stopped and tilted her head. "'Listen,' she said. We both listened. We stood together on the dark street corner and listened for a long time until a cold wind began to run its fingers under our collars. Bronwyn shivered and tucked her arm under mine. We went on our way, not speaking of what we had heard on the corner." Far away from the direction of the marsh, we heard faint strains of eerie, lovely music. Nicknames, a Halloween Reminiscence by Rick Hautala. Rick Times have changed. Kids don't use nicknames the way my friends and I did when we were growing up. At least it seems that way. When I was a kid, living in Rockport, Massachusetts, just about everyone had a nickname. There was Skippy, Kuna Lips, Monroe. Skippy was a nickname for Sanford, so he got double duty. Ronnie, De- Ronnie Dead Eyes Emerson, later immortalized as the name of my son Aaron's first rock band. Bob Mustard McIsaac, Bill Dimesworth-Williams, Phil Degagne, Degany, Dana Dots Dana Dots Johnson, Mike Grass Powers, which had also been his father's nickname, so he was Little Grass and his father was Big Grass, and so many others. It seemed as though you weren't really in unless you had some kind of nickname. Mine, as was my brother's, was the fairly unimaginative but serviceable Howdy, usually pronounced Howdy like H-O-W-D-Y, hence my email address. A short sidebar. In college, I loved digging... I love digging into the derivation of words and phrases. Still do. I discovered that the word nickname comes from the middle English and nickname, which essentially means an also name. Anyway, back to the story. Another thing that there seems to be fewer of these days is what we call local characters. You know, the town drunk, the village idiot, the gimp, or crippled kid who had probably been stricken with childhood polio or something even worse. In these PC times, such characters don't seem to be around as much, and they certainly don't have the social status they once had. Everyone's been mainstreamed, and we certainly don't call people drunks and retards and cripples anymore. We were heartless and unenlightened back then, and often cruel in our nicknames and characterizations of people. One of the village nuts in our little town was a guy named Johnny Caffrey. He'd stop just about anyone on the street and ask if they wanted to hear his chicken imitation. Whether they wanted to or not, he would immediately begin to cackle and flap his arms around. We had other town tards, notably Saff Stevens, but Johnny was the best, the most versatile and visible, even though he made me and my friends feel really uncomfortable whenever he was around. We were always afraid he might flip out or something. We didn't know better. That was one of the quote-unquote functions, for want of a better word, of these oddballs and misfits, to strike a bit of fear and wonder into all of us who thought we were quote-unquote normal. There, but for the grace of God, we didn't know then that we-we didn't know then what we know now that normal is a relative term back then it was an absolute. The scariest guys in town though were the town drunks, some were stonecutters from the local quarries, which were still in business, but most of them it seemed were the fishermen and lobstermen from the wharves. a place my mother told me to avoid, so naturally, I went down there often. I'm not sure why or how our town qualified to have so many notable town drunks. Maybe it's simply because we were a coastal community and fishing and lobstering are damned hard jobs that call for extreme measures when looking for an outlet, or as folks call it, blowing the stink off. Sure, there are still plenty of alcoholics in every town. The problem is, most of them are doctors and lawyers. But like I said, times have changed and there no longer seem to be groups of men who hang around the wharves or stagger through town loaded to the gills, ranting and cursing at... Well, practically everyone, including the local cops who either drove them home or carted them off to the tank to sleep it off. The town drunks all had their nicknames too. There was Peanut, Honey, Mickles, Hobble, Chick, and plenty of others. You'll notice that I don't use their legal first names because I didn't know them. They were adults and I was just a kid. I don't use their last names because I don't want to hear from their surviving relatives' lawyers. All of the town drunks are long since dead, mostly from alcohol-related diseases, accidents, or in a few cases, suicide. Then again, drinking to excess is a form of prolonged suicide, just like smoking cigarettes. I'm not saying that I miss them. Well, yes, yes, I am saying that I miss them. They added local color and humor and an element of danger to my childhood. They were basically harmless fellows, I suppose, but we, but we kids were scared to death of them, terrified, in fact. The dangers ranged from foolish and laughable, like the boiling hot summer day when Mickles ranted and raved about the heat while he hosed down the outside of his house to cool it off inside, to dangerous and scary, because we were positive if any of them ever caught us alone in the woods, they'd kill us, or worse. They presented us with a sense of real danger, and that's why I want to tell you about the Halloween night I had a life-threatening run-in with a couple of these old fellas. Another sidebar. The word Halloween should have, should have the apostrophe between the E's, because it's a contraction of the words hallowed and evening, which, in Elizabethan times, was contracted to Ian, as in Good Eden. Being the evening before All Hallows' Day, we got Halloween. Of course, like many things, almost always for the worse, we've corrupted the word to Halloween. Man, I hate losing traditions. I lived out in the country. Rockport was, and still is, a beautiful seacoast town, Although there are now at least one, if not two or three houses between each house that was there when I was growing up, we've lost our baseball field, our sliding hill, and most of the woods we played in. But long before I was born, especially in the summer, artists and photographers would flock to Rockport like seagulls to the town dump before it became a sanitary landfill and reclamation area. My parents' house on Stockholm Avenue was in a really rural area known as Pigeon Cove, the part of Rockport that not many artists or tourists ever visited. We had dirt roads, cow and horse barns, chicken coops, old fishing rods along the wharf, large fields and pastures, gardens, old sheds and lots of woods and blueberry swamps and Indian caves to play in. When I was in grammar school, there were actually two brothers who occasionally rode the family mule to and from school, leaving him tied to the bicycle rack with some grass and a bucket of water during class. It was a wonderful bucolic life, especially in retrospect. Of course, on Halloween night, my friends and I would do the traditional stuff. We'd dress up in costumes. I favored Zorro, if besides a black mask, cape, and hat, Zorro favored blue jeans, a Rockport Little League t shirt, and scuffed kid sneakers. Go trick-or-treating and go to church or school-sponsored Halloween parties. Yes, we had a local church that held an annual Halloween party. Try getting away with that in these PC days. As we got older, we'd play more elaborate tricks, some of them so mean and dangerous that today they they would easily garner a police record, if not actual jail time. I think I was in sixth grade when the following incident happened. I'd been out trick-or-treating with some friends, and we got the brilliant idea that it would be fun to quote-unquote bomb passing cars with the little green apples from some of the trees on our street. We hit cars with snowballs in the winter, so what was the difference? Did I mention that we weren't the brightest batch of kids? Anyway, we hid in the shadows along the side of the road, armed with a handful or two of knobby, worm-eaten green apples as hard as small rocks. Whenever a car would go by, which wasn't very often, we would nail it, usually by bouncing an apple or two off the side panels or hubcaps if our aim was true. But I had the brainstorm that it'd be even better and funnier if we dropped the apples from the trees onto the passing vehicles. My friends weren't so sure about that one, so I was the only one who scrambled up into an old maple tree whose branches overhung the road. With my jeans pockets bulging with green apples, I was ready. It wasn't long before a car went by, and I timed it just right so the first apple I dropped, I didn't even have to wing it hard, hit the roof of the car with a resounding thump. The only proof that I had frightened the poor driver, and that was our intention, was a quick flicker of brake lights as he reacted to the sudden thump on the roof of his car. Satisfied, I watched the car continue down the road, the driver none the wiser that Zorro had struck. My ears prickled when I heard the approach of my next intended target. A loud sputtering and backfiring of exhaust filled the night. Looking up the road, I saw an old pickup truck swaying around the corner by old man Nivola's house. My friends immediately scattered when they heard the raucous laughter and shouts of the passengers. They knew it was some of the local fisher and lobster men returning from the wharves. Even at a distance, it was obvious that they had been celebrating Halloween and were drunk on their asses. But I wasn't worried. I was Zorro the fox, dressed all or mostly in black, lurking above the road in the trees, hidden from them. I'm sure the palms of my hands were sweating as I gripped the green apples, preparing to throw. The headlights swung around the corner like prying searchlights as they momentarily swept aside the darkness along the roadside. I panicked, wondering if the light might illuminate me and the trees, but I felt safe. I was, after all, Zorro the fox. My friends had long since vanished, scattering into the darkness as the truck rumbled toward my hiding spot. My friends knew not to mess with these guys, but I waited and waited, wanting to time my shots for maximum effect. I saw the dark silhouettes of several men in the bed of the pickup truck swaying back and forth, laughing and shouting and waving their bottles around as they went. How long could someone do that these days without getting pulled over? I waited and waited until they were just about under my tree before releasing my barrage. Green apples rained down on the roof of the truck like huge hailstones, and I felt a rush of exhilaration when I realized that I scored several direct hits. It even looked like one apple bounced off the head of one of the guys in back. What happened next wasn't according to plan. I saw the bright red flash of brake lights and heard the harsh ripping skid of tires on the dirt-coated asphalt. That always happened when the driver reacted to the sudden thump of apples on the roof. That was my proof I had gotten them. Only this time, the brake lights stayed on until the truck skidded sideways to a lurching stop. In a flash, the drunken lobstermen spilled out of the truck, cursing wildly as they scattered in all directions, trying to find the culprit or culprits who had the gall to nail them. I panicked, no longer feeling safe and invisible up in the tree, more like a treed raccoon. These guys were so raging mad and drunk that I knew they would kill me if they ever caught me. With my thin black Zorro cape flapping behind me, I fell as much leaped out of the tree and landed in the rocky overgrown field beside the road. One or more of the drunks must have seen me, and they started yelling as they gave chase. I'm positive that they were flinging curses at me, but I was too terrified at the time to recall precisely what they said, other than threatening to kill and skin me if they ever caught me. And I knew they'd do it, so I hit the ground running. I remember twisting my ankle on an unseen rock, but it wasn't enough to drop me or even slow me down much.' The men from the pickup were after me, but they were so drunk they tripped and stumbled in the darkness while I lit out across Willow Johnson's pasture and into the bordering woods. I had the strength of my youthful, youthful legs and pure terror pushing me on. Besides, I was dressed like the knight, as Zorro, so I eluded them easily. Crouching in the woods, panting heavily and dripping with sweat and the chilled night air, I listened as the fishermen finally gave up, climbed back into the truck, and drove off. I had escaped with my life, but I knew that it might not be over yet. If any one of them had caught even a glimpse of me, I knew they would have recognized me. In the morning, a phone call to my father to report what I had done would earn me a whipping. One last sidebar. Yes, this was back in the days when strappings and beltings were the common and accepted disciplinary punishment for me and all of my friends. I didn't get many, just enough, my fear of punishment made me behave, or at least make sure neither my parents nor any other adults ever caught me. That's there's not much more to tell. This is really just an incident from my life, not a story, but to this day it remains vivid in my memory. I'm sure the fear I felt that Halloween night fuels some of the stories I write, and when I think about it I miss the childhood hi- I miss the childlike innocence of those days. I wish I had a better mem I wish I had a better memory. Maybe that's why I write fiction, to try to bring it all back. But there is one thing I do for sure, and that's encourage my kids to create and promote the use of nicknames among their friends. It's one of those little things that adds character to ordinary life. Happy Halloween!